so glad that you guys are here. Uh, man, we live in a time where content and information is more accessible than ever before. There's 4.66 billion internet users worldwide with a variety of access to information and content unlike the world has ever seen before. Within this 4.66 billion internet users, hear this, this is stunning to me. There are 4.48 billion people who use social media of some form. Within the social media realm, the average user uses about six social media platforms, which I'm like, dang, I didn't even know there was six. I knew Facebook and Instagram, but the Twitter and the, you guys know, I honestly don't even know what all the social media things are, but an average of six are used within that group of people. And while social media and while the internet can be an amazing tool in this culture that we are living in, it is also a major factor in our country becoming morally and sexually desensitized. It's like this influx of information and content that is at the very tip of your fingers whenever you want it, wherever you want it, and it's had a huge impact on the direction that this country is headed. See, we have quick access to whatever our heart desires. And as a result, we have bought into the lie that we can have whatever we want, whenever we want, when we want it, denying our hearts nothing. See, if you want something and you don't have the money, you can just put it on a credit card. If your spouse is being annoying and they're not giving you what you think you need, you can open your phone or go to your computer. If you think your life is just horrible and you're like, man, woe is me, I can't believe my life. Look at my friend on Facebook, they're always in the Bahamas and they're on the beach or they're hunting and they got everything the world has to offer. Their life is just amazing. And we begin to give our hearts to things that God never intended us to give our hearts to. Why? Because we have failed to guard our hearts. We have chosen to give in to our flesh and deny it nothing. See, the Bible tells us to guard our hearts. In fact, it says, guard your heart above all else, for from it comes the wealth of life, the fullness of life, the abundance of of life, and this may be more difficult than ever before in this culture that we're living in. See, there's more competing for our heart now than there ever has probably in the history of this nation, for sure. And we're seeing the repercussions of it with a failure to do so, with a failure to guard our heart in this society. It's doing things in us that are often destroying us without us even knowing it. What we're going to see this morning is that God has told Israel the same thing, to guard their hearts. See, guarding your heart means learning to say no to some things in order to gain the best things. When God says don't, we listen knowing that when he says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. See, a guarded heart produces an abundance of life. If you're new with us, if you want to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10, we're going to start there. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are here in this place, that you are present. God, I just thank you that you're good. I thank you that you have given us a blueprint for life. I thank you that your heart is for us and not against us, that your heart is to give us the fullness of life, abundance of life. And on that journey, you tell us to guard our hearts. So God, I pray in this place this morning that your spirit would move in such a sensitive and a tender way, yet a convicting way that would draw us to your heart, God, that would show us what it is to guard our heart and how that offers and gives us the fullness of life. God, my prayer this morning is that we would be a bunch of people that walk out of here in awe of who you are and thankful that you have shown us how to guard our heart for from it comes the fullness of life. God, we pray that you would have your way in this place. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and active. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 
Verse 10 says this of chapter 2, Have we not one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Before we get going, I want to distinguish something. What is happening here? what What is the covenant that is being profaned? See, there was the Mosaic covenant, which was a conditional covenant that God made with Israel that said, Israel, if you will be obedient, if you will do this, then I will bless you and I will honor you. But if you don't be, if you're not obedient, if you run from me, if you pursue the things of your flesh, then I will not show favor on you. See, this was a conditional covenant with Israel. Now, there are other covenants in Scripture that were unconditional, where it was a unilateral covenant of promise with God's people. And God binds himself to those promises regardless of what Israel chose to do. But the covenant here that God is saying is you profaned the covenant that you promised to fulfill. And therefore, I am not showing favor upon your offerings. Profane means basically to make something unholy or rob it of its significance and worth. See, someone who makes a vow to the Lord swears an oath but fails to fill it is said to have profaned the word of God or the covenant of God. We see this in Exodus chapter 19 where Israel had promised to keep this covenant that now they were being disobedient to. Exodus 19, 5 through 8 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And what does it say? All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Israel had previously agreed to this covenant. Yeah, God will be obedient. We will do the things you have called us to do. And as a result, you will bless us. You will bless us as a country. But we find that they have profaned the covenant, that they are not fulfilling their side of the deal. It had nothing to do with God. It's that Israel had walked away from their God. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless, an abomination, and has been has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. See, after the death of King Solomon in about 930 BC, Israel split between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. So here's the southern kingdom, Judah, that God is saying, man, you have walked away from me. You have married daughters of a foreign God, basically saying this, you have married a woman outside of the covenant community that I have told you to marry within. Essentially, they had married a non-believing woman. They had married a woman that did not worship the same God. See, marriage outside this covenant community, specifically with the Canaanites here, was forbidden. But hear this, not for reasons of racial or ethnic exclusivism, but because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you, Deuteronomy chapter 7. God is saying, Israel, I I just told you not to marry women the Canaanite women, women from that worship other gods because they will naturally pull you away from worshiping me, from giving me the worship that I deserve. See, there's a reason that God says not to be unequally yoked. And it's not to steal your joy, and it's not to steal your fun, and it's not to steal all this great stuff. It's because he knows that You're only as strong as the strongest person in your relationship. If the person that you're in a relationship is not seeking the Lord, if they are not pursuing the Lord, naturally you will begin to pull away from worshiping the God that you profess. He's looking out for our best. He wants our best in marriage. He wants our best in relationships. He's not saying don't marry someone who does not profess faith in Christ, he's saying, just don't do it because I don't want you hurt in the end if you're not worshiping the same God 
things do not work as I designed them to work. And here is Israel. They have gone against that. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings offering to the Lord of hosts. And then God says, and this is the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? And the Lord says, because the Lord was the witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God is saying, Israel, the reason I'm not accepting the offering from your hand with favor is because you have been unfaithful to your wife. You have not honored the covenant, not just with me, but the covenant that you made with your wife. And because of that, I will not show favor upon your offering. Here was Israel, and they were weeping before God and saying, oh God, why aren't you honoring, why aren't you giving us the things that we desire, the things that we need? And God is essentially saying your weeping and groaning was not, there's no repentance here. Israel, you have walked away not only from me, but you have walked away from the wife of your youth, and then you're coming to me and asking you to bless everything else. And as a result, God was refusing to show favor upon their offerings. Verse 15. Did he not make them one, husband and wife, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? And it's, he says, godly offspring. And then God says this, so guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And then God says this again, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Surely this was a difficult thing for Israel to hear. And hear this. My prayer as we move forward in this is not that if you have been faithless to your spouse that your life is over or if your spouse has been faithless to you and left you that there's no more hope because here's the beauty of the gospel. There is redemption and God takes broken pieces and he makes them whole. He takes what has been shattered and he puts it back together if we will turn to him, if we will pursue him and he makes beauty out of ashes. But he has told Israel that they have left their spouse. And if you know your Bible at all, you may be thinking, well, didn't Moses permit divorce in the law? He did in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But Malachi 2.16 in the New Living Translation says this, for God speaking, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord, says the Lord of the armies, so be careful about your spirit that you do not steal treacherously. Why does, how, so how does this work? If Moses grants and says divorce is okay, it can happen, but God says he hates divorce. How do the two work? Why does God hate divorce? Here's why he hates divorce, and he said it in Matthew chapter 9, 19, verses 3 through 9. He says this in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away, the Pharisees are asking. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So why does God hate divorce? Because divorce causes great pain. And God it breaks his heart when what was united and pure, what was meant to be is shattered and broken. It shatters his heart. That's why he hates divorce. He hates it because of man's ability to wound deeply. He hates it because of man's ability to be wicked and unfaithful to your spouse, which cuts deeply, which does damage that is residual sometimes that we cannot understand. 
God hates the fact that we as people break other people. We hurt other people in our selfishness and our pain. And maybe you've been a recipient of that this morning. Maybe your spouse has walked out on you for no reason and you don't even know why. Maybe you've walked out on your spouse. Whatever it may be, hear this that God hates that that has happened. That is not his plan. His plan is for redemption and healing, and this is what the gospel brings. That even in your deepest pain and even in your deepest moment, God can heal. He can do things that only he can do. See, he hates it because we're breaking apart what has become spiritually one. The two have become one flesh, according to Genesis 2.24. And when this breaks, it affects those around you. He hates the brokenness it creates, the pain that it causes, and the spiritual repercussions that sometimes come. See, the spiritual repercussions are often seen in your children and your children's children in generations to come. But thank God that because of Christ, he can redeem what is broken. Before you think, I've never committed adultery, well, what did the Bible say about looking at someone lustfully in your heart? You've already, created adult, you've already committed adultery yourself. God is in the business of healing. If it were not for Jesus, we would be stuck and bound in our sin. We would be stuck in the wrath of God for our brokenness. But because of Christ, he has come to make things whole. So what do we see in this text? I think there's three things, and the first is this. Marriage faithfulness begins before the vows. See, the men in Israel were being unfaithful to their wives, but before they were unfaithful to their wives, they were unfaithful to their God by marrying a woman outside the covenant community of faith that God had commanded them to marry within. Hear this if you're single. If someone is not faithful to God before marriage, it will be much more difficult for them to be faithful to you after marriage. If they are not serving him before marriage, they still may not be serving him after marriage. And if they refuse to honor his plan for purity before marriage, why would they honor his plan for purity after marriage, purity that is solely for marriage? spouse. See, you want someone to be faithful to you. Faithfulness begins before the marriage vows. Divorces are happening on uncharted numbers. In fact, there's a huge trend, a huge rise in this country where people are no longer even getting married because they figure it's easier just to cohabitate. And then when they split up, it doesn't matter. You don't have all the legal stuff and all the papers to sign. Where are you at this morning? And even if you're married, maybe you look back at your marriage before you got married, whatever it is, if mistakes were made, mistakes were made. But from this point forward, move forward, move towards faithfulness, move towards what God has. If you're single and you want someone to be faithful to you, look for someone who is faithful to God first, willing to lay aside their selfish desires to be obedient to him, to do things according to his design, no matter how difficult. And hear this, if they will be faithful to him, the chances are very high that they will be faithful to you. But if we reverse this, we really, I mean, we're just following the trend. See, the men of Israel did the exact same thing. Part of the reason that they were leaving their spouse probably is because they weren't worshiping the same God. There was no unity in this covenant of marriage, but it started when they first were disobedient to just marry whoever they wanted for the sake of love. If you are in this place and you are not yet married and you desire to be married, pursue God with everything inside of you. Pursue him and him alone. Do not settle. Trust him. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your desires. He knows what, what your deepest yearning is for, but don't settle. Wait for the person that loves God more than they love you, and that will create a marriage that is healthy. Before Caroline and I got married, I wrote her dad a letter that just promised him, I asked permission for to marry, or to marry, before I even met her, no, not to marry her, I wasn't that fast. 
I asked him permission to date his daughter. And in that letter, I said, Gary, I promise to be faithful to Caroline and to God, and we will stay sexually pure until the day that we're married. See, I made a covenant not just with God and me and not just with Caroline, but also with her dad. We fulfilled that covenant. It was not easy. When you love someone, it's not easy to do that. But the only thing often that kept us pure was if I was weak, Caroline was strong. If Caroline was weak, I was strong. We were pursuing this God together. Why? Because if you will honor him in your relationship, he will show favor upon your marriage. I'm the most blessed man in the world to be married to Caroline. I feel like our marriage, God has just shown favor on it in so many ways, and it's nothing that we did to earn it. It's the gospel. God is the giver of good gifts. But I will say this. If you honor him with your marriage, if you honor him with your relationships, if you do things the way that he has said to do them, he will show favor upon your marriage and your relationship. But you have to do it together. And that's what Israel was lacking, is one of them was probably trying to worship God, and the other one was trying to worship this Canaanite God, and it doesn't work. The two will never blend. Faithfulness often involves waiting. But in the waiting, remain faithful. Pursue him. Become the person that God has called you to be. And think about it this way. If you're waiting to be married and you're looking, man, God, I'm just waiting for my person. In the waiting, focus on becoming the person that you would like to be married to make sure that they're attracted to you. Because if you're looking for a person that is pursuing God, that is wanting his heart, and you're not doing it, when that person comes and they don't see that in you, they may miss you. Because they're pursuing God, and if they don't see that in you, you may be missing the very person that you're waiting for. Remain faithful. Trust him in the waiting, for he is good. And hear this. Maybe you're in this place and your marriage has dissolved. And it was unhealthy and you don't even know why it broke. The beauty of God is that there is redemption and maybe you will find your spouse, your next spouse again someday. But in the waiting right now, be faithful. Try to not let the past hurt of what your previous spouse has done to you push you away from God, but let them drive you to the heart of God. Be faithful to him. Be in the waiting. Be faithful and watch what he does inside of you as you pursue his heart. Know this, that a person that is truly pursuing God looks for a person who is doing the same. Number two is this, God's plan for marriage impacts more than two. We see it right in the text. God is saying, man, what, I mean, look at it with me. He, he says, um, right here, verse 15, did he not make them one with one portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the God, one God seeking godly offspring? Part of the purpose of marriage is not just about you the two of you. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than two. God's plan for marriage impacts more than two. His purpose for marriage is that then you would raise up godly children if he gives them to you to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and on their mind. And when a marriage is broken and severed, it affects children. It affects generations to come. See, so often in this culture, we view marriage as, oh, well, it's fine. It's just the two of us. Yeah, I'm hurting and I'm broken and it didn't work out. But the tragic thing is, is how it impacts children for generations to and it's not God's plan. It's not his design. That's part of the reason that he makes the two one to lead their children, to lead their family. But sometimes we just think it's all about us. And God is saying right here, the purpose of marriage is more than just two. It's that, the, that their children would serve the Lord. Know this, your faithfulness in your marriage, your commitment to your spouse, your decision to run from sin and temptation, your willingness to pursue your spouse when they are being a bonehead, your commitment to the covenant you made impacts more than just the two 
of you, it impacts your children and all those around you. If you're married and you don't have children, your marriage still impacts all those around you because people are watching. And the marriage is to represent Christ's relationship with his church. And if it's fractured, then it gives people a wrong view of Christ and his love for his church. His design for marriage is not just for the two of you. See, how you interact with your spouse is telling your kids about the God you are teaching them to believe in more than your words about him. They're watching. God reminded Israel that their wives were also, at one point, their companions. And hear this, I think it's important. I think sometimes we miss this. That God says that you have basically left the wife of your youth who was once your companion. And I think sometimes in marriage, we forget that. That your spouse is to be your best friend. They're a companion for life. They're the one that you do life with. And your kids are watching this. Think back to when you first started dating, there was probably butterflies and everything was great and you loved everything about your spouse and you pursued them and you would never dream of being unfaithful to them because you loved them, but now you're older and they kind of annoy you. You kind of wander once in a while and you're just in this place where you're like, well, they're not really even my friend. We're kind of more just roommates now. I mean, I do my thing. I live my life and my spouse lives their life. And I think it's important that God is reminding Israel that the wife of your youth was once your companion. And you're no, you're no longer, you don't even, it's not that you don't just love each other. You're not, you don't even like each other anymore. And it's so not God's when Caroline and I first got married and we planted another church and some things happened that were just horrifying, uh, I was in this place. I was very depressed. And a couple things that Caroline told me early on in our marriage is, Luke, I just feel like I'm your roommate. I feel like you're just doing this thing and I'm kind of left in the dust and I'm not really your wife. I'm your roommate. And so often, I mean, you want to talk about a dagger to the heart as a newly married? That was right here. But so often we do the same thing. We, we just treat our spouses, our roommates, just someone that we live under the same house and we cohabit, we coexist, but we don't invest, we don't pour into them. We forgot that they are to be our best friend, not just our spouse. And God is saying that to Israel. <laughs> You've forgotten how good you had it. And maybe some of them married women who were non-believers and outside of the covenant, he's saying you were still best of friends and now you're not even faithful to them because now you're just running from them and you're looking at everything that this marriage can give to you and it's causing you to be unfaithful. So here's a question to ponder. Do you view your spouse as your companion, best friend, and the one you love or as your roommate that lives under the same roof with you? Hear this, the enemy uses what you think you need or deserve out of your relationship to try and destroy generations to come. It's not just about you. Pursue your spouse. If your spouse has left you, if you get married again, pursue your new spouse. If you're dating and you're waiting and, 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 and you have no one yet, pursue God. Pursue him. Pursue your spouse. And watch as God will show favor upon your marriage. See, marriage by design impacts more than two. I have this little thing here. It's two salt and pepper shakers. They are completely fused together. As you can see, one has salt and one has pepper. When God says in Genesis 2, he says he takes two people and he puts them together and they are fused into one flesh. They are no longer two, they are one one may come with a bunch of salt and one may come with a bunch of pepper, but now they're completely fused and they're unbreakable. This bond cannot be broken. In fact, a little bit of salt and a little bit of pepper makes something so tasty and amazing like steak, not leftover by the way, but actually good steak, makes it amazing. But here's what happens 
These two are one. The only way to break these apart is to either break both of them or one of them or whatever. This is what happens in marriage when it's broken. If I were to break this, and I'm not because I don't want to clean it up, when this is fractured, something breaks. Whether it's both or one, it, it, something's got to break if I drop this. And pepper goes everywhere, and salt goes everywhere. And this is really what happens in a marriage. When this marriage bond is broken, the pepper and the salt impact generations to come. Sometimes you don't even know the people. Too much pepper and too much salt is nasty. I shared this a few months ago, but at my bachelor party, my brother made this biscuits and gravy, and he took the salt shaker, and he went to dump it in the gravy, and the lid came off, and all the salt went in, and rather than taking a spoon and, like, scooping it back out onto the ground, he just began to stir it in. <laughs> and our first bite, I thought I jumped into the ocean tenfold level of salt, mouth wide open, we couldn't even eat it. But see, what happens is too much salt destroys things. Too much pepper destroys things. So here's the deal. God is saying when a marriage is broken, both are going to be impacted, but not just these two, everyone around you. For generations to come, but here's the beauty of the gospel, that God can take a broken salt shaker and a broken pepper shaker, and he can gather all the salt and all the pepper, and he can put it back together and make it whole. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is not possible without Jesus. Physically, spiritually, it's impossible. But if you're in this place this morning and your marriage is on the verge of fracturing, on the verge of breaking, look at this and think, look at your marriage and think, what's going to happen if I make this decision, if I'm unfaithful to my spouse? What's going to happen if I walk out? What's going to happen if I don't pursue my spouse? What generation is it going to impact? And if you're in here and it's already been fractured, maybe your salt and your pepper is all over the floor of your life, and maybe each one is shattered and it's in a million pieces. God can restore and make it whole if you will pursue him and guard your heart. He's in the beauty of it. He's in the business of redemption. He's in the business of of making what is broken whole. He's in the business of taking the years the locusts have stolen and giving it new life. That's the God that we serve. See, that's what makes the gospel beautiful. If you're in here and your marriage is in friction, fight for your marriage, fight for your family, fight for your future generations, fight for your spouse, fight for your faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Offering to your spouse your first and your best, not giving them whatever is left. It's amazing how first fruits filters into marriage. <laughs> right? God's saying, if you'll give me your best, if you'll give your spouse your best, if you'll give your future spouse your best, or if you don't even know who your future spouse is, but you will give them your best by giving me, all of you, I will bless it. Pursue him. Wait on him. Trust him. This is faithfulness. See, so often in this culture, we label marital faithfulness as not sleeping around. But it's so much more than this. It's how you pursue your spouse. It's how you honor them, even if they don't deserve honor. It's how you love them, even if they're unlovable. It's how you lay aside your needs for their needs. It's how you push them towards Christ and not pull them away. It's how you sacrifice for them. It's how you commit yourself to them and bring the best out in them. It's how you meet them where they are and love them in their struggle. It's forgiving even in your deepest hurt, and it's repenting and turning from the things that bring them pain. That is faithfulness. See, faithfulness looks like not giving up on them because Christ has not given up on them. And it also looks like not giving up on yourself because Christ has not given up on you. That's faithfulness. 
trusting him in the pain and in the struggle and in the hurt that he can take what is broken and he can make it whole if you will be faithful. See, faithfulness looks like giving your marriage the first fruits of all your time and energy. The third is this. The key to faithfulness is a guarded heart. I don't think it's by accident that God told Israel twice, so guard yourselves in your spirit. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. See, God commands Israel to guard their heart for a reason because it produces the fullness of life. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it determines the course of of your life. Hear this. If your heart is not guarded, you will not be faithful. Israel neglected the guarding of their heart, and it cost them God's favor on their offerings, and it cost them unfaithfulness in their marriage. Guarding your heart begins with obeying what God has commanded. Here's what it means to guard, according to the American Heritage Dictionary. To watch over in order to keep from being damaged, robbed, or injured. That's why God commands us to guard our heart. He doesn't want our heart damaged, robbed, or injured from everything that's competing for it, everything that's competing for the desires of your heart. I promise you this, if you give into it, it will rob, steal, and destroy every single time. God is saying, I've given you the blueprint for life. Pursue me. Give me yourself. Guard your heart against what the enemy wants to use to destroy. See, the point of a guard is to protect a person or a place from outside intruders. And any wise attacker, any wise enemy does not attack when the guard is fully alert, when he's awake, and when he's ready for you to come. The wise attacker waits until you're either sleeping or you're distracted or you're looking at something else. Whatever it may be, that's when they attack and the enemy does the exact same thing to us. He attacks when you're sleeping. He attacks when you let your guard down. See, there are thousands of intruders that are competing for your soul and the enemy knows your weak spots. He knows the areas that you're distracted in. He knows when and where to attack. And he will attack when you are alone, distracted, and sleeping. What are the things that have your heart this morning? What are the areas that you need to guard in? Maybe it's you can't watch TV late at night because you know where it takes you. Maybe it's when your wife or your husband is not giving you what you think you need, you need to pursue them instead of pursuing your phone. Maybe it's you need to cut off a relationship that you're fostering through Facebook behind your wife's back and she has no idea and you don't think it's hurting anyone. How do you guard your heart? Get rid of Facebook. See, guarding your heart takes doing things that are difficult, but you know it's for the reason of God's best. Because I promise you this, if you don't guard your heart and you just give yourself to whatever your flesh desires, it will destroy you in the end. See, God loves you too much to let you get away with your sin. Why? Because sin destroys. If God didn't love you, he would just let it go on and on and on and on because it doesn't matter. God's saying guard your heart early so it doesn't hurt. It doesn't cause so much pain when it breaks. What do you need to cut out of your life to intentionally guard your heart? See, it takes intention, sacrifice, humility, repentance, training, commitment. It takes it all. See, there's a reason God says, above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life, because it does. Whatever has your heart has your soul. 
God is saying, give me your heart. Follow me, trust me. Trust that I have your best. And watch as the fullness of life explodes. Are you guarding your heart this morning? Or are you letting the enemy have his way in whatever your flesh desires and wants? See, a heart unguarded will eventually fall. If you neglect to guard your heart against the attacks of the enemy, eventually it will catch up with you and cost you greatly. If Jenna and Marcus want to come up, I'm going to wrap up. I don't know if you heard this, but there was a name that most of you have probably heard, maybe some of you have not. Ravi Zacharias was a huge pillar of the Christian faith. He was known all over the world, millions of people. He impacted millions of people for the gospel. He was a fighter of the faith. He was a leader of the faith. And after he died, it was discovered that he had been involved with sexual misconduct for years. No one knew, except for the few people that were involved. He did his whole ministry. He lived his whole life. And none of this came out until after he died. And when it came out, it ruined some people. It, it did things in some people that actually turned them away from the faith because they're like, if, how can I trust anyone anymore? Relationships were fractured. The church was impacted all around the world because of this man who was not guarding his heart while it looked like he was being faithful, while everything looked put together on the outside, his heart was not being guarded. And I want you to hear what he said before he passed. Before he passed, before any of this came out, he said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I'm going to say it again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will do this every single time, and this is why it's crucial to guard your So the question is, how do you guard it? Well, it's beautiful because God has told us how to guard it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known towards God. And then he says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paraphrase. The only thing that can guard your heart is a pursuit of the one who guards it. The only way to guard your heart against the attacks of the enemy that want to destroy and crush you and beat you down and destroy marriages and cast you out and impact generations to come, the only way to guard your heart is to pursue Christ and Christ alone, for He will give a peace that passes all understanding. He says, come to Him in thanksgiving. Give Him praise for who He is. Pursue him and none else, and your heart will be guarded. If you're in this place this morning and you are not pursuing Christ, and you are thinking this is a big joke, I promise you, your heart will crumble. The enemy will attack it and take it down if you are not pursuing Christ. It's him alone that guards. It's him alone. That protects because when we're walking with him he gives us the strength to do the things that we need to do he gives us the strength to turn off our phone he gives us the strength to delete our Facebook account he gives us the strength to pursue our spouse he gives us the strength to do the things that we cannot do why because he gives a peace that passes all understanding and this is the key to a guarded 
heart is the pursuit of Christ. So here's the question as we wrap up. Are you guarding your heart this morning? And if so, how are you doing it? What steps are you taking to ensure that the enemy does not get a foothold in your heart? What steps are you taking to pursue him with everything that you can? What steps are you taking to be faithful? What steps are you taking to shut off unhealthy relationships, to invest in the one that is healthy, the one that God has given you? Because if you're not taking intentional steps, I promise you this, your heart will be invaded by the attack of the enemy and he desires to seek, kill, and destroy. But the God of all peace, he's the God that protects, that guards, and that gives the fullness of life. What we're going to do as we close is we're going to take communion together, but we're going to do it a little differently. And there's cups under your chair. If you don't have one, if you can raise your hand, we're going to have a couple people walking around that can give you a cup and some bread. And by the way, they're all gluten-free. So if you're gluten-free, you don't have to worry. We just did them all. So as we enter into communion, I just, we're going to, we're going to enter into a song and Here's my heart as we move into this, that you would take some time and reflect before you take this juice and bread and remembrance of what Christ has done and reflect, is your heart guarded? How are you in your walk with God? Are you pursuing him or are you letting the enemy have his way? And if you're letting the enemy have his way, redirect repent of that, turn from that, and turn to Christ and say, God, I just need you. I need your strength to pursue you. I need my heart to be guarded. There's no magic time of when you can take that whenever you're ready, but I want you to hear this. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he, when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he gives a warning. And he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So here's what I want to do. First, if you're not a believer in this place, this is not for you. But it can be for you in a moment if you turn to Christ and say, God, I surrender myself. I know that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe what you have done on the cross. I believe that you have risen from the grave to give me life. And I turn from my sin and I turn to you in faith this morning. You'll be set free in a moment. But if you're saved in here and maybe you're just walking through some things, maybe you've been in angry with God or you've been frustrated with him or you've been pursuing these things that are trying to get your heart take this time to reflect upon that and ask God to do a deep work in you before you partake of it. Turn from that sin and turn to him and watch as he begins to guard your heart. This is the moment to do it. See, the beauty of the gospel is this, that God took all of us who were really unworthy of his love, and he has extended it to us if we will turn from our sin and turn to him. And there is no beauty more beautiful demonstration of love than that. And all we do when we take communion is we remember the shed blood of Christ for the atonement and forgiveness of our sins. 
We remember his broken body that was broken and on our behalf so that we can be set free. This is not a light thing, but it's also a joyous thing that we can celebrate that Christ has come to redeem what is broken, that he has come to heal what has been shattered, that he has come to take the salt and pepper that has been shattered all over the ground and pieces everywhere and shattered. We don't even know where to go. He has come to make them whole, to make them new, to put back together the pieces that have been shattered for the redemption of your life. And it's all because of the gospel. It's all because of Jesus that he chose to go to the cross on our behalf to give us life and life to the full. This is what it looks like to guard your heart, to trust God, to put the pieces back together and say, God, even if I have been broken, even if my ex-spouse has wounded me deeply, even if my current spouse has wounded me deeply, even if I'm waiting on my spouse that has not yet come, whatever it is, whatever it is, all I want to do is be faithful. All I want to do is pursue you and thank you and trust you because you are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of my praise and you are the one one who redeems no one else can and that's the beauty of the gospel that God takes broken pieces and he makes them whole God I thank you for this morning I thank you that you are such a good God that regardless of our past regardless of our hurt God regardless of what someone has done to us God or we have done to them God there is always a moment where we can turn around and we can say, God, I'm turning from that. God, I'm giving it to you and I'm turning to you. God, I want to be faithful. I want to guard my heart. And if we will just turn around and pursue you, turn around and run to you, God, you will make whole what is broken and you will make beauty out of ashes. So God, I ask in this time right now, as we enter into this moment, a holy moment, that we would be a bunch of people that leave this place saying, God, what is my next faithful step? God, what does faithfulness look like tomorrow? That we would be a people that pursue you with everything that we can. That we would be a people that pursue your heart. And that we would trust that even in our brokenness, God, even in our mistakes and our hurt and our pain, that you can make beauty out of ashes, that you can restore the years the locusts have stolen for the glory of your name and the life of your people. We love you, God, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.